Ralph Gibson began taking pictures while in the U.S. Navy in the 1950s, and later assisted Dorothy Lange and Robert Frank before establishing his own studio in New York. His work is widely exhibited and held in public collections around the world, such as the Stedelijk Museum Amsterdam and the Museum of Modern Art New York. His books include The Somnambulist, Deja Vu, Days at the Sea, and Ralph Gibson, Self-Exposure. The recipient of NEA and Guggenheim grants, Gibson was made a commander of the Order of Arts and Letters by the French government in 2002. He lives and works in New York. Ralph Gibson, welcome to the creative process. Yes, well, the creative process has been a preoccupation of mine for the last, well, I would suppose 60 years or so. I, I've kept journals all my life in an attempt to write about how I'm working, what I'm working on, how it's going. Uh, Hoping to, hoping to be able to enhance my creative process. It's interesting that you call your show creative process because these are words, two words, that are constantly in the, the foreground of my concerns. Uh, I, whatever I do, quite often I say, is this good for my work? Will this be good for my work? Should I go here? Shall I do that? Uh, the more exceeds the less. Uh, when, I, when I had my initial debut, I became known for a book called The Somnambulist. And I took uh, 24 of those pictures in one weekend, and then I worked for three years on the next 24. So at that weekend, during that weekend, I was in direct communication with my source of inspiration. I went straight to that place in my spirit, and I photographed from that place. Now, since that time, I occasionally I'm able to access that same place because that was over 50 years ago and I've learned better how to how to get myself in in line coordinated with these triangulated with this event but I do understand one thing which is that the artists that we hold in such high regard Da Vinci Picasso the, these people who produce vast bodies of work must have been able to access that particular source within themselves on a daily basis. Yeah, and part of that is the skill, which obviously you had a lot of uh, early, you know, technical training, I guess, with the Navy. But uh, it's also that, I don't know, that thing you can't explain, the inspiration or, or improvisation. I'd like to go back to your beginnings as an artist. It seems you, you know, you came away to a very interesting time and you're surrounded by interesting artists in, in many disciplines, but I think about um, your exposure to um, your father worked as assistant director for Hitchcock, Correct. and then, yeah. and just could you describe that whole world when you you were your senses were opening. Well, that's a beautiful uh, expression. To the senses were opening, because uh, uh, as a kid I was chubby and I wasn't uh, very athletic, and I was an only child, and I didn't have many friends. I wasn't. I wasn't really uh, social in that way, and when I started going to the, to the set with my father, uh, I was fascinated by the, the, the incredible power of the arc lamps. They had carbon arc lamps that were very strong because the film was orthochromatic and very slow, and the camera was enormous. And I would see all this energy focused on uh, a, a guy reaching for a cigarette lighter or something like that, an insert 
or reaching for the knife in a Hitchcock film oh, yeah, or something. Great you know. contrast. Yeah, and so, and then at the same time, when I was about 12, uh, 11 or 12, I discovered magic tricks and I became a magician. So I didn't know it at the time, but I had these kind of feelings, these, these emotions that would come over me. And I came in later years to recognize that those are the feelings of an artist. I don't think it's good or bad to be an artist. I think you're just born that way. However, I didn't understand that when I was a, a, a child and a young adolescent. And it was only when I started making photographs in the Navy later that uh, I realized that there was, a, there was a connection. So I was basically a very emotional kid. I was under a cloud. I, my parents, in spite of the glamour, my parents, uh, were both alcoholics and it ended when I was 13 and 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 so that phase of my enchanted childhood was was soon replaced by uh, out of the house at 16 and into the Navy at 17. And so you were, your idyllic childhood came to a crashing halt now that didn't mean I was emotionally prepared I I went in the Navy the way the way a prisoner gets his head shaved and is shipped off to Devil's Island I mean it was the end of the world I had uh, I had uh, failed high school. I, my, my last completed year of school was ninth grade. I'm still working on my high school diploma. I'll get it eventually. Yeah. And uh, I failed the 10th grade, and uh, then I felt my family had failed. I thought I was responsible for that. Then I went into the Navy and uh, failed photography school. But I was able to get back in photography school. I wrote the captain a letter, and uh, he readmitted me into the school. And, and of course, then I clung to photography like a drowning man to a life raft. I, I took it extremely seriously, and in the, you know, months and months and years at sea, sleeping on the darkroom floor, nothing to do but master my craft. Mm -hmm. To make a long story short, by the time I came out at just before I turned 21, I was very advanced technically. Yeah, we need more artistic boot camps. I didn't un see. See, in those days, in the in the late fifties and early sixties, in photography, artistry was considered was indicated by technical mastery, mm -hmm. because people didn't understand content in photos precisely. They didn't. They didn't re realize the, that it's content that makes something art, not not the not its formal properties necessarily. So I I, I did advance uh, technically and. Uh, by the time I came out, I went to art school, San Francisco Art Institute in 1960. I was very advanced technically, and so you, my instructor said, how do you get that look? But then I, then I was invited to work for Dorothea Lange. Yeah. And what a wonderful opportunity. Yes, but that was purely on the strength of my technical expertise. Yeah. And I quickly divined that she, she knew little or nothing of, of the mysteries of the darkroom. Right. It was, as I've, I've stated many times, it was the sheer force of her will that, that, that that compelled the medium to obey her intention, yeah. you know, and she got and out on film. relationship with her subjects. Exactly, then, yeah. pure passion. Mm -hmm. I, I, I printed all her masterpiece negatives, her mm -hmm. fame, Migrant Mother and all these, oh, wow. and uh, the negatives were virtually useless. Okay. They, they, they barely contained enough uh, information for the, for the masterpiece right. to shine through. But the lesson there I quickly learned was that it was, technique wasn't playing a very big role. In, in, in the power of her image. At the same time, Ansel Adams was doing these, these masterpieces of tonality and, 
and, and exaggerated uh, development and, and, and exposure. So uh, Dorothy was the first great photographer that I was privileged to know personally and observe. I worked with her for a year and a half, and uh, from her I learned my point of departure theory, you know, yeah. which has been the backbone of my career. And uh, it's, been very, it's been very interesting because, I mean, I wanted to be a, a, a documentary photographer, and, mm -hmm. and I had a Leica, and Robert Frank had come out with the Americans, and by the you time... You still always work with Leica. Yeah, since 1961. Mm -hmm. My first great decision in life was to be a photographer. I never doubted from the time I was 17 on. It's like being born rich. I had a vocation. Yeah. I knew my purpose on planet Earth. Mm. And so with, with, this, with this in mind, I was able to, uh, I never doubted. Mm -hmm. I always knew I'd prevail. I thought I'd be a commercial photographer at the time when I took that vow. But uh, by the time I was 27 and moved to New York, my, my reportage skills were such I was invited into Magnum, which is the great you know, agency for documentary dudes. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, you but, were talking about Robert Frank then as well. But then I, but then I met Robert at Max's Kansas City and uh, showed him my work and he said, well, you can work with me on my films. And so I dropped out of Magnum and I hung with Robert and uh, he was the second great artist that I, we went to Mexico together, we drove around Mexico, we drove back. I, I saw him at his peak in, 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 in a, at a great moment in his life over a period of a couple, two, three years. And, and I learned a lot from him too. So, so one time I was showing Dorothea some early photographs. I said, I want to be a surreal photographer. And she said, you could just be yourself, Rafael. The rest is the name. Yeah. And then later I'm working with Robert and he says, uh, we're making uh, me and my brother. He said, I might fall flat on my face on this one, but at least I'll do something original. So I realized very quickly that it was imperative. Uh, America in the 60s uh, was the tail end of the American dream. We had just gone to the moon. And the idea, you see, we have no academy here. It's not like Europe, where you, you can go today to the Louvre and see somebody painting the Mona Lisa. Yeah, it's a nice and, thing. And great cultures reproduce themselves in this manner. They mm -hmm. stay alive through reproduction. I didn't, see, I didn't want to be another Magnum guy, which, which I had already achieved mm -hmm. at an early age. I, I, I really, it all turned around when I made that picture of the Burning Beauty Parlor, because uh, after my parents divorced, they sold the house and my mother became a beautician and beauty parlor. And then she died in a fire some years later. And uh, when I saw this, you know this story, when I saw this burning beauty parlor, I took my camera. And then I realized, that as I was catharting my grief for her, I realized that I, I had a chance to, I didn't want to sell my soul in photography, I wanted to find it, <laughs> basically. And so uh, my medium, my relationship to the medium completely shifted as a result of this experience. Every artist has his or her epiphanies, has a, has a great watershed moments in, in their career, why you decided to be what you are, why and when did you decide. So I, uh, I've been very fortunate that way. So then my next great decision was I decided I wouldn't be a commercial photographer. And so I didn't do any commercial work from 1930 till about 2010. <laughs> you know, for right. a very long time, I didn't. Ex and now, You've done some fashion, but yeah. Well, yeah. that was much, much That's more recently. Yeah, yeah. And I'll only do that for one day. But, uh, <laughs> but it's kind of diverting. It's fun. I don't have the same attitude. I'm much more mm -hmm. established in my in my own sense of self than I was when I was thirty, yeah. because I tried to be a commercial photographer when I was young. But I realized that uh, uh, 
they didn't really want what you do. They want what was currently in vogue. They claimed they want you, but what they really want is a little bit of you and a lot of what's currently going on. Right. You see, every artist finds his or her path in a completely unique, previously undiscovered way. Right, their signature. Well, that's, that's, the, that's the quality in their work, but I'm just talking about how they arrive at what they do, how they, yes, their visual signature as well as their, as well as their, uh, as, as, as how they're going to make their lives. Right. You see, because it's a very interesting thing as an artist, until you succeed as an artist, mm. you're, you're below Clochard, you're really a bum. Yeah. Then the minute you make it as an artist, you're like a priest. Mm. Society loves a, uh, a recognized artist and sneers at as, as a failed or struggling artist. Yeah. That this is this is something I've experienced. Mm -hmm. And then once an artist is successful, uh -huh. you're you're welcome at all levels of society, from the very top to the bottom. Oh, you're an mm -hmm. artist, and so this is a very interesting uh, experience also. But anyway, on the basis of this, I uh, just started doing my projects once. Once the Somnambulist came out and I was established, I was able to uh, it released a tremendous amount of creative energy, the recognition I received. So I learned that, what the role of recognition for an artist. Right, and you could be much more in control. And also, could you discuss, because you've worked, you, you don't just take pictures, you create books and the juxtapositions, and then you have your press, yes, yes. and all of that, could you discuss that? Because that's, that's a bigger project. Well, initially, when, when I wanted to publish The Nambulist, it was predicated on two, two stimuli. First of all, The Decisive Moment by Cartier-Bresson yeah. and The Americans by Robert were the two books that had most powerfully impacted me. Somewhat less uh, Perspective of Nudes by Brandt and American Photographs, but uh, there was no infrastructure t uh, for photographers to by by which they could become recognized other than a book. Yeah. So a book was fundamental. But then I really wanted to make a book that hadn't been made before. And I found myself drifting towards this dream thing. The work just announced itself and I was just, I was just there to make it. So uh, I worked on, trying, while I was trying to get the book published, which, which I couldn't do, nobody wanted to publish it without changing it, I continued working on it. And so by the end of three years, it was, it was one could say, finely tuned. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was able to, a graphic designer friend of mine, Bob Overy, threw me a job that gave me enough money to uh, pay the printer. Mm -hmm. And uh, three months after the book came out, I had my, an international reputation in a, albeit very small or non-existent field, art mm -hmm. photography, but I was, I was on the way. And I started getting my first little grants, national endowments for a couple thousand bucks and stuff. And uh, I was able to uh, start my career. Mm -hmm. And from when I was struggling for recognition and success, my, my Faustian pact was, I want just enough recognition to be able to do my work. Mm. And that's what I've gotten. I've gotten all the recognition I deserve, no more, no less. I can do my work. Nothing comes between me and it. You don't want to be it. contaminated too, too much success. That's, yeah. for, that's right. I'm not, I'm not in the entertainment business. Yeah. I, I, I'm not interested in the art as a celebrity. Mm -hmm. it, uh, because I found that the more celebrity I got, the fatter my head got. So it really wasn't good for me. Yeah. And so, so it was a much different world when I started. But I've lived in a society between, between America and Western Europe. I've been able to 
to make enough money to do what I want, to do my projects and get exhibitions and published and mm -hmm. et cetera. You've certainly drawn from your encounters with European culture. I know you also go to Brazil, oh, absolutely. but yeah. Um, and, and with writers as well, because I know they've written introductions to your books, Marguerite Duras and, uh, and others. Could you just speak of your influence or your inspirations from uh, your dialogues with other people? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. It's an excellent question, Amia. What, what, really, what really occurred was that I started going to Europe in 1971. I could start. I could get an excursion ticket for two hundred fifty dollars and go there for six weeks. And I went as often as I could. All I would need was one of those tickets and another couple hundred bucks, and I could go to Europe for a while. You could yeah. remember there was that book Europe on five dollars a day. Well, okay. you could go over there for pennies and, and get by. Yeah. And and of course I was photographing and meeting people. And as you know, photography was invented in France, and it is held on the same level as literature. So I had, a, I had an exhibition of Sonambulist and Déjà Vu in 1971 or two at the American Cultural Center on the Rue uh, du Dragon. Oh, I know yeah, it well, yeah. yes. And everybody in Paris came. Mm -hmm. All the intellectuals, all the great photographers, and in one, one night, I, I met the entire intelliki of, of Paris. Mm -hmm. And I made many friendships, and uh, they understood my work uh, in, in, the, in the most profound way. The French continue mm -hmm. to, to know better what I'm doing than, than, than anybody. But about the time I was meeting the great photographers, even, uh, even starting with Dorothea and Robert, and I met Cartier-Bresson, all these people, I realized that the great photographers I was meeting were all essentially 19th century gentlemen and women. They were highly cultured in the classical sense. Yes. You, you, and you know exactly what I'm referring to. I do know that. And so I patterned myself. I considered the paradigm to be the 19th century gentleman, all the way through meeting Castelli and becoming friends with Leo and showing with him, mm -hmm. and uh, continue my studies in, in languages and in philosophy of, of Europe. And it massively impacted my work. With, so I profited from the depth of European culture without suffering the lag. And uh, as, a, as, a, as an American, as a Yankee, I'm entrepreneurial by, by birthright. Yeah. Whereas I don't have to adhere to a, a matrix of social behavior. I don't yes, have to no. go into the family business. Mm -hmm. you, you know. There is a nice um, uh, Bob bubble or filter of irresponsibility when you're an outsider in a culture yes. and you're forgiven, <laughs> you're forgiven. You can yes. actually say lots of things because yes, yes. he doesn't know yet. <laughs> that's true, that's true. And there's always been this incredible relationship between the United States and France anyway. Yes. It's a, the symbiosis, practically married. It's mm -hmm. practically a love affair, you know. Yes. And uh, it's, it's, it's endured for a very long time for me. And uh, I've received many commissions from the Ministry of Culture in France, and mm -hmm. I've been around the country. Of course, it's not so vast that that's, that's much of an accomplishment, but I certainly have seen a lot of France and understand it a lot. And uh, I love it, Italia too, but Italia is much older. Mm -hmm. uh, the whole country is a museum, yes. and uh, they have a different attitude towards arts. Uh, I'm happy to have spent as much time as I did in Europe because I think that the Europe that we're appreciating right now is, has a very short future. I think the assimilation and globalization is going to drastically uh, dilute those cultures into a uno mundo kind of uh, situation in 50 or 100 years. I don't know. It's a whole other discussion. 
But as you know, I'm planning to go to Perifoto uh, next week, and uh, I have a big show and a book signing of my autobiography, it's mm -hmm. premiering. Mm -hmm. So uh, I will continue. Uh, one of the things uh, I learned from Dorothea was point of departure, always be working on something. Well, well, my point of departure in, in, in Europe, in France, is uh, L'Histoire de France, and I've been taking pictures under this title mm -hmm. since 1971. So I will go, I'll, go back to, I'll go back to France next week, and I'll take pictures every day, mm -hmm. and they will go into my body of work entitled L'Histoire de France, mm -hmm. and it'll have been a lifelong thing. Same with Italia. I have one going called Chiaroscuro mm -hmm. in Italia, and uh, I have a relationship to the figure, female nude, that I've been working yes. on since 1960. Of course, in Europe, we, uh, we're not so puritanical, <laughs> so we, we no. love the figure. I mean, I mean, culture is a is a is a vast. Uh, it's 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 like a it's like a, a large and healthy, beautiful glacier. It moves slowly. It's very big. It's inexorable. It has absolute and total uh, influence. And uh, I'm interested very much. I think now, probably even today, the best thinkers uh, are, are French. Jean-Luc Nancy is a is a philosopher that I just love. I mean. Francois Julien, he's, he's, we've worked together. And I know that uh, one time a functionaire told me, he said, La France is just une boutique de penseur. It's just, <laughs> which is kind of an interesting line. So that's what I'm we getting at. We are familiar at. with their ideas like you would be familiar with shopkeepers. Intellectuals are not like so dis, you know, they're, they're like the launch on the popular TV shows. Yeah, yeah, sure, I know that. Yeah. They're just integrated into the culture, yes. not part of academia, not isolated, not, yeah. yes, they're, 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 they're functional. And, and uh, well, that's, that's because a culture is defined by a totality of the, of the ingredients that are woven into its fabric. And a, a, a philosopher and a butcher are just two different parts of the same whole. Yes. I find that fascinating. But I also find it Everything I look at in a, in, a, in a culture like France, everything I look at is French. If mm -hmm. I'm looking at the edge of the table, yes. if I'm looking at the, the, the crouton and the baguette, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, everything, everything. So I like the fact that everything I'm looking at is reflecting mm -hmm. a vast system mm -hmm. that is taking a long time to refine. See, many of the shapes that you see in the old world are highly refined shapes. Yeah, without realizing it, you're absorbing all sorts of motifs and echoes. That, Correct. Yeah. Yes. And what is the, I don't know, what is the American motif sensibility that we're imprinted on without perhaps being aware of? Well, the, the, the thing that, you see, I grew up in, in Los Angeles. In, in the 40s and 50s. Another has a whole other vocabulary. Where icons. everybody was just a cowboy, and it was wide open spaces, and, and you had to be very self-sustaining. Even today, the thing that's not understood about all those militias up in Montana and stuff like that, those people are still like that. Yeah. They haven't come into the globalized thing. Uh, I love globalization, I love technology, I think it'll get us out of the jam it's gotten us into. Yeah. And But, but those, those people, uh, those wide open space types out there in the heartland of America, uh, I understand them. I don't think like right. they do, but I do understand them because I come from that. When you are self-dependent and self-sustaining, you don't realize your role within the social infrastructure the way that somebody lives in, 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 
in New York City does. New York being the center of culture in Western civilization is slightly different than living on a, on a mountain or a small town with, with 1,500 people, 15,000 people. Right. It's just an entirely different approach to the, to the experience of, of being on Earth. So I, I still to this day, as on the eve of my, on the cusp of my 80th birthday, I still hold the view that I could pretty much do anything I set my mind to doing. Right. But probably if I were an 80-year-old Parisian living on the Ile Saint-Louis in my family apartment that I inherited after my father died 30 years ago, mm -hmm. I probably wouldn't have said what I just said. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I would have probably been thinking, I have to give this apartment to my son so that he can keep my name going and things like that as a family. Mm -hmm. It's a whole other way of thinking. Yes. What we're talking about, to, 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 to make this a little more clearly delineated would be the old world versus the new world. Now, we're living in a world where those delineations are, are going completely out of focus. They're blurring, but it still remains. And uh, this, this enormous swing to the right that we see in all these governments around the world, that's just an attempt to retard the inevitable, but I use the word inevitable. Inevitable means the change is gonna happen with or without the slow, those people attempting to slow it down. Right. <laughs> you know, the world's they're going to do what it's going to do. They're afraid of losing power. They're afraid. Yes. There's huge fear. Yeah. They're, they're afraid of, of, of not understanding things. Now, one of the things I've learned as an artist, you see, most people have what they call their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. They have their comfort zone. Well, as an artist, I'm most comfortable when I'm out of my comfort zone. That's true, yeah. You, you understand? I do, That's yeah. where I want to be. It's difficult to access. I don't think uh, the, most, of, most of my... My, my fellow Americans feel that way. I don't think most people in the world feel that way. Well, as an artist, you, well, as you said, if you, you have to make yourself, you have to forge yourself, you have to stick your neck out. And most people are, want to be very, there's a tendency towards conservatism and just, you know, keep it going, status quo and that. Uh, in my autobiography, uh, one of the things I say is that uh, most people have an inventory, they have their savings, they have their stocks and bonds, they have their plans. My inventory, consists of all the photographs I have not yet made that lie in front of me, the works that I have yet to produce, which I treasure greatly as a, as a concept. You know, I consider that to be my wealth. I consider that to be my sense of self. I'm Joey McGlone, an aspiring comedian based in Portland, Oregon, recent graduate of Rice University, and associate podcast producer and interviewer for the creative process. As someone who finds the exercise of defining the word art a bit frivolous, I cannot help but identify Ralph Gibson as a quintessentially and iconically artistic artist. His concerns with originality, materialism, and the eternal negotiation between technique and emotion in art echo ceaselessly in the cavernous dialogue of modern and contemporary artists. One of the most poignant and recurring themes throughout this interview is that of control. Gibson is exceedingly intentional, it seems, in all of his work. I am responsible for every square centimeter of everything in my frame, he says of his photography. There are no happy accidents. Even the decision to write his own autobiography reveals